Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Criminal Law Department Presents CAF Chats. Today we're going to be talking about United States versus Nadal M. Hassan, Major United States Army. Uh, case and opinion that was issued on September 6, 2023. This is Lieutenant Colonel David Seagraves, United States Marine Corps. With me, I have Major Dustin Morgan. And we have to say that, like so many other cases like this, the capital cases, death is different. So these episodes will be a little bit different than the rest of our CAF chats. I'll give you a brief orientation. First, we're going to give you an overview of the facts of the case, the overarching ones, and we'll supplement those facts for each issue. Then we're going to have a discussion of the difference requirements or additional requirements of capital cases. Then we will address each of the 11 assignments of error. Now, because of this, we acknowledge there's no way we can do this in 20 minutes. And so this will have to be broken up into multiple episodes, but we want to give it a thorough and just uh, discussion. So first, Dustin, would you give us some of the overarching facts of this case? Yeah, sure. Yes, sir. I'll uh, kind of go through what happened that led up to the litigation. And then we'll talk about how the death penalty is different in the military context. Um, so early in the afternoon of November 5th, 2009, um, Major Hassan went to the Soldier Readiness Processing Center on Fort Hood, which has since been named to Fort Cavasso. So the Army went through a naming, uh, renaming installations over the course this past year. Um, so I'll refer to it as Fort Hood just for ease of use because that's what it was at the time. So he went to the SRP site at Fort Hood. Right after lunch break that day, um, he took out a pistol and systematically cleared the building, killing 13 individuals and injuring another 31 uh, by shooting at them. He was eventually subdued by police, um, injured during an exchange where he exchanged fire with them, hospitalized, and then put into pretrial confinement. He faced trial four years later on Fort Hood, um, where he was charged with the murder of those 13 individuals, attempted murder of 32 other individuals, one of the people he shot at, a police officer. He didn't hit with the weapon, didn't hit with any of the ammunition, and was eventually tried there found guilty of all the offenses and sentenced to death um, in 2013. And because he was sentenced to death and it was referred as a capital offense, that triggers a lot of differences from my normal courts martial. Correct. So the same Article 66 review still happens. So we talk a lot about Article 66 and 67 in the appellate context. So he still gets that same review at the service court. So the Army Court of Criminal Appeals did review this. Um, They heard many of these same assignments of error. Um, But what is different is Article 67 makes death penalty cases mandatorily reviewed by the CAF. So whereas before they have a discretion to take cases or not, they, they, grant, they grant appeal on those cases or not, for Article 67 in death penalty context, they have to take it. And not only do they have to take it, every issue that's raised, they have to address in some way or the other. So typically where you see one, two, three, three issues raised in an appeal, here there's 11 because everything that the defense raised during the appeal, the CAF has to consider and has to write on. So this is why it's quite lengthy. And you have other rights as well. I mean, you have the ability to possibly get mitigation experts to get other funding for other experts to help you prepare your case. 
learned counsel, things like that. So death penalty litigation in general is, is, is very different at the trial level. Um, so not only the appeals different, like at the trial level, yeah, the cases just look fundamentally different than a typical criminal trial. Um, so as you talked about, typically the defense will get a mitigation expert. So they'll have the ability to look back at the accused's entire life. And they have the absolute right to present evidence in mitigation. Whereas there's a relevancy bar. And in some instances during sentencing, the Supreme Court has said time and time again that if there's mitigating evidence, the defense gets to put it in. There's also several other procedural protections for the accused. Because as you said, death is different. The appeals that handle death penalty lit- litigation, they've recognized that first for death decades now. So if you listen to our last episode, United States versus Anderson, you'll know that there are non-unanimous verdicts in the military. So it's three quarters and CAF just recently affirmed that practice in Anderson. So in the death penalty context, there has to be unanimity at the the guilty findings. So there will be a panel of 12 instead of a panel of eight, and they have to unanimously find the accused guilty of a capital qualifying offense or else death, death penalty is off the table. After that, sentencing is different, too. It's not just they go back and deliberate on a sentence and decide whether or not it should be the death penalty. There's three wickets that have to be passed through. So the first one is you have to find an aggravating factor beyond a reasonable doubt. So they have to agree um, unanimously that the aggravating factor has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The RCMs lay out eight aggravating factors, and they really look to determine whether or not that's been proven by the government beyond that standard. The second is they have to find unanimously that the aggravating factors outweighs any mitigation the defense presented during their sentencing case. And then only then do they decide on punishment. And again, they have to decide unanimously that the accused should be put to death or else the death penalty cannot be adjudged. If one person doesn't agree to any of those three wickets, it's life because there's a mandatory of life sentence with, um, with murder in these contexts. So very, very different procedurally. So obviously not only does it affect the rights of the accused and, and their possible punishment, but as far as the government, there's a lot more involved uh, and so the decision to make this referral to a capital court martial is a serious decision. Yeah, there's there's a reason that this that the offenses in these cases happened in 2009, and the death penalty wasn't adjudged until 2013. I mean, four years is actually lightning fast. Like, dare I say? I mean, it's it, that's pretty quick to have death penalty litigation of this magnitude accomplished. I mean, the, the government is signing up for a multi-year, multi-million dollar case if 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 you refer a case capital. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dustin. Is there anything else you think the, the listeners need to know about capital offenses in the military uh, before we move on to the assignments of error? No, I think if you understand that context, you'll understand why this case is so complex and why there are so many issues here. Okay, so we'll move on to issue number one. The CAF looked at whether the military judge erred in allowing the appellant to represent himself because the appellant's waiver of counsel was not voluntary or knowing and intelligent. And so essentially, Major Hassan decided to represent himself, to go pro se. Usually not a good idea. Yeah, the, so the, the case law for self-representation can be traced back to a case Feretta versus California. And ever since then, the Supreme Court and every subordinate court in the United States like leads off their discussion of self-representation, talking about the perils that await a litigant if they represent themselves. I mean, there's a reason that law school is so hard and you have to pass the bar and you learn all these rules over the course of the year because Going to court is is quite difficult, and representing yourself can be perilous. You know, as we'll see here in some instances. Um, before we jump into the law here, I think, as we said, we'll supplement each issue with facts. I think there's some additional facts that need to be fleshed out a little bit. So when Major Hassan was arraigned in 2011, he was assigned three defense counsel originally, and they were experienced defense counsel. He had a lieutenant colonel and two majors, one of which became lieutenant colonel later, and they were they were assigned to represent him throughout. 
and they did over the course of the first two years from 2011 to right up before trial in 2013. The motions practice in this case was quite extensive. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of motions filed. They litigated the constitutionality of death penalty in, in, in the military. They litigated a bunch of expert motions, whether or not they should have experts appointed to their team, um, evidentiary issues. I mean, Pre-trial litigation in this case was quite extensive and quite fleshed out. As trial approached, though, there was a tension that arose between Major Hassan and his three appointed counsel based on how the defense would be presented. Major Hassan wanted to proceed with the defense of others strategy. Basically, he wanted his defense counsel to argue that the war against um, Afghanistan in particular was unjust and unlawful. And because he considered it to be unlawful, the killing of those 13 people and the injuring 31 others in his mind was justified as a defense of others defense. And he wanted his defense counsel to present that. They presented him with their theory that they would basically argue that his religious radicalization, as they put it, overcame his ability to form the premeditated design to kill. The theory there being if the government can't prove premeditation, they can't meet one of the underlying prerequisites to sentence him to death because it wouldn't be a death qualifying offense maybe or also potentially put mitigation in, in, into the case before even getting to sentencing if i could stop you there for a second because uh, we had this discussion earlier that religious fervor or invoking the religious aspect here was not a complete mental responsibility defense yeah i don't think that the opinion doesn't really flesh that out as much but if you think about it just logically that would not make him not culpable for the offenses like that wouldn't count as a full or even partial mental it wouldn't count as a full mental responsibility defense let me correct myself it could potentially be a partial mental responsibility defense where you negate the specific intent to kill for instance or maybe you negate the premeditation as it appeared to be their design here all that does is really take death off the table he still would have been found guilty even if that's true potentially um and he still would have faced you know life in prison, potentially with or without parole, but it takes death off the table. Sure. And, and also another known strategy for, by defense counsel, kind of that um, mitigation through litigation aspect. You put it out there, maybe it's not a perfect defense, uh, but, but you're sowing in mitigation evidence throughout the whole case. Especially in a case like this, where there's no question as who committed the offense. Um, and there's no question that the government's probably going to prove some level of murder. I mean, I think that that is a very viable strategy, especially if your ultimate goal is to not have your client sentenced to death. Now, let's talk a little bit about that defense of others defense that, that Major Hassan wanted. Again, try to say that the operation, operation Enduring Freedom was an illegal war, and, and that the people that are at this deployment center were going to possibly deploy and, and kill Taliban or other people in Afghanistan, and then it was his right to defend them. Uh, now, as you said, there's litigation about this pre-trial, and the trial judge ruled that that was not a valid defense uh, under the law. I can talk about that for a little bit. Sure. So this became an issue when Major Hassan told the military judge that he was going to represent himself. He framed it as what we talked about earlier, just kind of diametrically opposed views on how the litigation and how the court martial should proceed. That religious fervor defense versus the defense of others. So when he dismissed his counsel and said he wanted to go pro se, he informed the judge it was mainly to pursue this line of defense. He actually filed some motions on his own behalf to explain why this was a valid legal theory and why he should be allowed to present this defense. Ultimately, the judge um, said it was not for her or the court martial to decide whether or not it was a just or unjust or legal war. 
um, and denied his ability to present that type of defense. After doing that, well, before doing that, really, um, and before allowing him to even file motions, she went through a, a pretty extensive inquiry with Major Hassan to make sure that he was capable of defending himself. So Ferretta, that case that we mentioned earlier, Ferretta versus California, requires a pretty extensive inquiry between the judge and between the accused before they're allowed to represent themselves. Basically, they're making sure, like a lot like a competency hearing, to make sure they're competent to stand trial. It's that, but elevated to make sure they understand the consequences of their decision to represent themselves and the fact that they're going to be held to the same standard as an attorney would. The rules of evidence are going to apply. The RCMs are going to apply. They're going to be able to make objections. They're going to have to answer objections. They're going to be expected to conduct voir dire, to call their own witnesses, to direct examine them, to cross-examine the government's witnesses, to make arguments, to make sure they're able to do all those like, really nuanced and legally complex things. They, they engage in a pretty extensive colloquy. And the judge does that here. If you look at the record in this case, it, it like extends over dozens and dozens of pages. And they even subject Major Hassan to a RCM 706 inquiry, so a sanity inquiry, before they allow him to represent himself. So they're, they're looking into every aspect to make sure he's up to the task here. The judge determines that he is, and she allows him to represent himself. I'm just going to go back to the defense of others for a second because, you know, th- this this conflict or this you know friction between the defense of others that he wanted uh, and the religious fervor argument of his defense counsel is going to be important for the autonomy of defense uh, under McCoy. But defense of others, the judge ruled that was not sufficient as, as, as per the law because of the eminence issue. Defend, to defend somebody else, there has to be imminent harm to the individual. Uh, and, and obviously these, these uh, service members and other people at Fort Hood – well, that's quite a jet plane ride uh, halfway across the world to be able to, you know, affect anyone else. So, so the, it failed for imminence. Is that correct? That's right. Yes, sir. So the the people in the SRP site on that day that posed no clear and present danger to anyone, really. So the judge said that that just failed as a matter of law for that reason as well. Now, would you talk a little bit to the, the, the United States versus McCoy and the autonomy defense issue? Sure. So the nuanced part of this first issue is... The, the defense here is arguing on behalf of Major Hassan that his decision to defend himself was not truly voluntary. And they trace this back to a, a relatively new principle in criminal litigation and, and, and in the court martial process, really. So it's from a 2019 case, McCoy versus Louisiana. So in that case, the Supreme Court creates for the first time the right to personal autonomy in your own defense. So they say from the Sixth Amendment flows this personal right to autonomy. Basically, your defense counsel cannot admit to something. They cannot admit to the factual predicate of a crime or even an element of a crime without you consenting to do that. So the argument here is that Major Hassan did not want to admit his guilt. By wanting to present the defense of others, he was not admitting that he was guilty of anything. And the contrary could potentially be true about the defense strategy here. If they're saying that they're, he was overcome by religious fervor or religious radicalization, they're in a sense admitting that he unlawfully killed these 13 individuals and unlawfully attempted to kill the 31 others. So they're arguing because he was faced with what they call Hobson's choice between defending himself and presenting his defense where he's not admitting guilt or allowing his three appointed counsel to defend him and admitting some level of guilt that his choice to invoke his Feretta rights was not voluntary. So it's stretching the McCoy principle and and kind of conflating it into the Feretta standard and, and for the first time really ever I've been able to find in American jurisprudence. And so I apologize for misstating uh, the, the quote there. McCoy versus Louisiana is 138 Supreme Court 
1500. So you hit the really nice nuance there, which which I'm, I'm picking up now. So under both defenses, they would admit that he actually did the acts, but but under you know Major Hassan's idea of defense of others, he would argue that it was justified, so not unlawful. Correct. Whereas theirs is unlawful but not premeditated. That's right. It's it's the unlawful nature of the killing that I think if you really were to drill down on this issue, that's where McCoy could potentially come into play. So ultimately, the CAF sided against the appellant on this issue. And why did they do that? So they, they kind of bypassed the McCoy issue a little bit. And they, they talk about McCoy being more of an isolated instance where you're actually represented during the course of your trial. So they don't consider that a voluntariness issue. They consider, like, they, they really look at, instead of looking at the McCoy issue, like, hey, did he appreciate the nature of what he was giving up by agreeing to, to represent himself? Did he understand and knowingly and voluntarily waive his Sixth Amendment right to counsel? And they look back to that inquiry I talked about a few minutes ago, where it was extensive, where the judge explained all the pitfalls of representing yourself, explained the fact that he would have to act as his own lawyer and, and engage in all these trial practices. And they say that in and of itself um, is sufficient to show that it's voluntary. McCoy, they think, is a more limited holding meant closer to the facts of that case where you are represented, where you do have an attorney overcoming your will. That's where McCoy really comes into play, not in an instance like this. They look to the actual decision and they find like, hey, he, he knew the consequences of this. He was making a choice to represent himself because of a strategic difference of opinion. Um, and he like, bore the risks of that decision. And I know you're, you're better with the facts of McCoy. But uh, in McCoy, I believe, the defendant in that case didn't want to admit he did it at all, whereas his defense counsel wanted to admit he did that, but used another defense. That's right. So in McCoy, the, the accused in that case wanted to present like a defense that the FBI had framed him for the killing of three people, and his defense counsel admitted that he killed the three people and just mitigated throughout his case. And McCoy was like, kind of in the background objecting to that happening the whole time. So, so very different than here. If McCoy were to represent himself, I don't think we'd even have that case law or have that general right of autonomy that exists as it does now. And it seems like the CAF, when they're addressing this issue, talked about Major son not wanting any counsel, not just these counsel. And, you know, kind of they're talking about how if you have counsel that in other parts of the, the opinion, they're talking about the choice of having somebody that's not prepared versus going alone. Okay. But they also they made a point that the, the military judge asked if you, they would like anyone else. Yeah, he, they did. Um, and he indicated like a week or two before trial that there was potentially someone else that he would potentially hire, but it never seemed to flesh out fully. Like when really pressed on it, he said, no, I'll represent myself since this is the way that the litigation is going, especially after the judge ruled that the defense of others was not going to come in. Like that's what really settled that issue for him. If I remember from the opinion, he was looking at, you know, there was possibility of getting a civilian counsel, but subject to being able to bring his, his wanted defense. And the court said, no, we've ruled the, the that defense is not going to work. So, okay, Roger that. I'll, I'll, I'll handle it myself. That's right. That's exactly what happened. That's right. right. Anything else we need to talk about on issue number one? No, I think that's it for issue number one. All right, we'll move on to issue number two. Whether the total closure of the court over appellant's objection violated his right to a public trial. Now, the additional facts we need on this issue are very unique. I think even during the oral arguments, both sides said they couldn't find any cases that matched this, this sort of fact pattern. Can you give those facts? Sure. So when Major Hassan decided to represent himself, it's not as if his lawyers were just dismissed and didn't participate any further in the court-martial. So they were appointed as what's known as standby counsel. So they sat at the counsel table with him. One of them sat behind the bar. 
and they were there to give him assistance throughout. So when a legal question arose, like he had a lawyer that he could go to and potentially flesh out the nuance of the legal argument or, or make an objection potentially. So after conducting voir dire um, and not challenging any of the members, and after saying during opening statements that the evidence will show I am in fact the shooter, his defense counsel, um, his three standby counsel submitted a motion on their own to the court asking to withdraw his standby counsel. Their argument being that they could not stand by as he, you know, quote unquote, marched to death on his own. So they had some ethical considerations, you know, their, their jobs and, and responsibilities as attorneys. And, and so they're making a motion to the court to possibly relieve them from being standby counsel. Correct. And when the judge, so this motion was sent to Major Hassan, sent to the judge and sent to the government as well. And when the judge examined this motion on her own for the first time, she saw that there was some attorney client work product in the motion. For those people that have been defense counsel before, like alarm bells should be going off in your head. Like what is attorney client work product doing in a motion that's sent to the government? So when the judge learned this, she first asked Major Son, like, are, are you waiving attorney client privilege? And there was some back and forth on the record where he first said no, he didn't waive it. But then when pressed a little bit more, potentially yes. And the government indicated they had not read the motion yet. So in an effort to prevent further spillage of potentially privileged information, or because not even potentially privileged, privileged information, she decided to close the court. Before she did this, Major Hassan objected to the closure of the court once he heard the march to death language. Because it became pretty clear on the record that he wanted to flesh out that that's not what he was doing and wanted to present potentially in public what he was actually doing in his own mind. So what I'm hearing is that basically standby counsel are afraid that he's essentially, for lack of a better term, committing suicide by, by, by court-martial almost, uh, seeking his own death. Uh, they, they raise ethical obligations that they're, they're concerned about, file a motion, give to all sides. And I, and I think the military judge, as soon as she started reading it, she ordered it sealed. She did. Because um, obviously – you know, attorney-client privilege, attorney work product are, are, are sacred uh, for all of us attorneys, judges, etc. We know that's very, very important. But brought it out in the hearing as she tried to start peeling back the layers of the onion a little bit, seeing what's going on here. And then at some point heard something that like, okay, danger. There might be some attorney-client privilege that we're going to be revealed if we ask about this further. I think she, she asked uh, Major Hassan, hey, would you please submit matters in writing to me. Well, she allowed him to do it ex parte even, um, which is kind of a rarity in the court martial process. Like typically when you submit something to the courts, the military judge, all sides are served with it, kind of like the, the motion here. So when you're allowed to submit something ex parte to the court, it's just between you and the judge. So she would have allowed Major Hassan to submit some sort of writing directly to her without the other side seeing it, um, which, which is unique and could have potentially solved this issue, maybe. I mean, we, we, hindsight's twenty twenty. We don't know what he would have said there. But Major Hassan did not want to take that route. He wanted to be heard. Um, but before that could happen, she closed the court, kicked all the spectators out, kicked um, the bailiffs out even. So it was just her, the court reporter, um, the government counsel, Major Hassan, and his standby counsel. Now, this is problematic because it implicates Sixth Amendment, right, to fair trial, open trial. Uh, First Amendment, freedom of the press to, to view trials, RCM 806. So what are the arguments from the different parties on this issue? Yeah, so this all stems back to a, um, a Supreme Court case, Waller v. Georgia, which establishes the right to a public trial and establishes the remedy for a, a, fail, like a violation of that. So 
fundamentally a violation of Waller's openness mandate is is what we call structural error in the appellate world. Um, and structural error as a government counsel, at least, is, is very scary because typically in the structural error realm, if the court finds error, the accused is entitled to a new trial just off the bat because there's no curing a structural error. There's no test for prejudice. It's just that's, that's game over. So the defense in this context is obviously arguing that right to, a, to an open trial, that constitutional right has been violated because if they win and it's structural, you know, in the normal context, you would get a new trial. So Major Assam would get a new trial. And the government argued that there was no violation of of the openness mandate. And if there was, it was de minimis and it shouldn't count to the level that's structural. Because if you look at it, and, and the CAF says this, it was like 30 minutes of an otherwise months-long trial. It was, you know, a dozen pages, a dozen pages prox- approximately of a 2,000 plus page record. So you're talking less than half of 1% potentially of the entire court martial. So you shouldn't receive some sort of windfall um, just because the court was closed potentially improperly for that short amount of period. And, and, and they'd also argue that it was a, it was a limited issue just talking about that that relationship between the standby counsel and the accused, even so far as saying like really a standby counsel has has uh, no standing, and so again not related to the merits of the case whatsoever is is the argument from the government. Now I forgot to put in the facts: the judge did not make any findings of fact before closing the court, but subsequently I think it was like the day afterwards put in the record. Something towards the fact that issues that arose between standby counsel and appellant and issues relating to the release of privileged attorney work product, attorney client, and other privileged communications, uh, she said there was substantial probability that an overriding interest in retaining the confidentiality of those communications would be prejudiced if the proceedings remained open, and I believe the other means to address the issues were inadequate. But that was done, importantly, after the closure and the, and the hearing. That's right. Yes, sir. So, which which is a problem because I think the appellate courts always look back with a little bit of skepticism after anything's done after the fact, because you're not doing that analysis before making the closure here, which is which is constitutionally required. Because it's not not all court court closures are unconstitutional. I mean, we do it all the time in the military system. MRE four twelve issues where you're looking at you know rape shield law. Um, like there's closures there. MRE five thirteen with patient patient psychotherapist privilege. There's court closures all the time that happen there. As long as you're doing that analysis, you're going to be okay. But since it's done after the fact here, it potentially creates an issue. Now, this is a very important issue in this case because this is possibly structural error. Yeah, that's that's scary to think about. Like if if this is, well, from a government perspective, it's a defense perspective, I mean, again, that's what you want. Because if it is structural and it was violated, the prevailing thought before this opinion came out is that you'd have to redo this litigation, which, as we talked about, took years to do. But importantly here, the court looks back to some language in Waller that I don't know if either side briefing this issue really looked at in total. So they, they quote a, a portion in, Wall, in Waller that says, the remedy should be appropriate to the violation. And they say here that the court warned against impo- imposing a remedy that would be a windfall for the defendant and not in the public interest. So that kind of calls into question that structural error analysis. Because even if it's a de minimis violation, arguably, um, if it's structural error, it's structural error and the case is reversed. So using that windfall language and using that the language that appropriate to the violation language, they overrule some of their prior precedent that says that the court closure violation is automatically structural and automatically entitles an accused to a new trial. So they actually come in and overrule some of their previous precedent. And they say, we're no longer con- going to consider this like de facto structural and the, and the accused get, just gets a new trial automatically. We're going to look to the severity of the, the violation here, and we're going to look to see whether or not the proposed remedy is appropriate. 
and here that they found that a new trial for such a small violation, in their words, would not be appropriate. So while they find a violation, which would make you think previously that Major Asano would be entitled to a new trial, they come over the top in this case and they say, nope, we're not going to do that in this instance. We're going to overrule some of our previous precedent and we're going to say we're going to tailor the remedy to the specific facts of the case. And so they, they'd say that while there may have been a violation of the right to an open trial, Major Asano does not get a new trial. And they actually pressed the defense on this during the oral arguments because the defense tried saying that, that the Weaver uh, was subsequent to Waller and, and that it did somehow overrule it. But then, you know, the justice said, well, would they not ex- you know, explicitly say that, which apparently, according to their opinion, they do not agree. Right. So I think I think when they looked at it, they, they had about six different reasons why they say, you know, this is not structural error, or at least that it should not be a windfall and overturned. I mean, I guess, again, the windfall is really the issue they talked about. As you said, the the closure uh, was very brief. You know, I think 34 minutes. 34 minutes out of 17 days. Okay, got it. Of a 17-day trial. Closed hearing did not involve witness testimony, the mission of evidence, or any other matter directly related to findings or sentence. Uh, military judge explored reasonable alternatives. Uh, I said the ex parte, the writing, trying to address it just on uh, on the record itself before having to close it. Uh, the military judge placed her reasons for closing the hearing on the record, albeit after the fact, which I think they said uh, was Ortiz case. Yeah, Ortiz is the the last time. No, excuse me. That Ortiz was not the last one, but the one before the last one uh, of a military justice case that went to the Supreme Court. Okay, but allowed subsequent. Uh, putting it on the record of, of those reasons. And then fifth, contrary to Pellet's assertions, these fan- findings by the military judge were not inadequate. And then sixth, the court has now unsealed the transcript of the closed session, and the public can really see it. Now, I believe it was nine years later, but it is there. And so the idea of having an open trial, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant, the people can go and see it. Yeah, so that's part of the litigation in this case during the appeals. Um, one of the last things that happened before oral argument is these these pages were unsealed and now are available to the public. All right. Are there any other issues here we need to discuss or any takeaways for uh, counsel in the fleet or the field from this issue? No, I um, I think that the only thing to take away from this case is if there's ever going to be a court closure, just make sure that you're creating an adequate record because that is required. So if you're a military judge, just making sure you're putting your findings of fact and your conclusions of law on the record. And if you're governor or defense counsel, just protecting the record as well and making sure the judge is doing that, if not. And while it seems that, you know, the cap has said, OK, it was sufficient to do it afterwards, maybe best practice, ask, ask the judge before they close it if they could put their findings on the record just to make it very clear. For sure. Yes, sir. So I think we'll stop there after doing those first two issues and we'll pick up with the next part of this episode with the remaining ones. I think it will flow a lot faster. Those two are some of the more legally complex and dense ones. Um, But we will pick up next time with the continuation of United States versus Assad. And as always, as I have to remind everyone, as Josh Mickelson would say, don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. Reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. And the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.